Welcome to the StoryCraft Cafe. Come in, grab a cup of your favorite beverage, and get ready to join the storytelling conversation. StoryCraft Cafe is brought to you by Dabble, the ultimate cloud-based fiction writing software. Here we're going to bring together storytellers from all walks to encourage and empower you to craft your best story. Hello everyone, this is Grace, the community manager here at the StoryCraft Cafe, and I am so excited to announce that our cafe is now open for business. We opened on Friday and we had such a great time. Um, So many people showed up, there was great conversations happening in the community. Um, We had an amazing interview with Christopher Paolini. The recording from that is up so you can go look at it on the community. Uh, And I am just, I was just overwhelmed with the amount of support that we were shown. So if you want to be a part of this project um, and come hang out with us, you can find us at the Storycraft Cafe, that's S-T-O-R-Y dot C-A-F-E. Again, that's storycraft.cafe. We would love to see you, and I hope to see you there soon. We are continuing our launch month festivities here at the StoryCraft Cafe. Today we have a conversation that I had with Sarah Pinbra about her path to success and how she has changed as a storyteller over the course of writing more than 20 novels. Before we get to Sarah, let's hear from S.A. Cosby about how inspiration can come from literally anywhere. I don't think I've ever said this before, but I've been thinking about it the last few days. And I think the really real gen, because, okay, so uh, Blacktop Waste and the character of Bug, I wrote about him in a short story called Slant Six, which okay. was published in the last issue of Thug Lit called Last Rights. And it got some attention. It got, it was like a, a distinguished, it didn't get in the Best American Mystery Short Stories 2016, but it was one of those distinguished stories. But even even before that, I think the genesis of the story was a conversation I had with my dad. And like I said, me and my dad were estranged estranged when I was younger. Him and my mom split, as a lot of families do. And I think when I was younger, I had a very black and white viewpoint about that. And as I got older and made my own copious amounts of mistakes in in (laughs) in affairs of the heart, I I learned that there are there are no black and white stories when it comes to family history. There's always shades of gray. Right. And so I had a conversation with my dad one day, and um, this is when I was really like, I was excited because I got my second story published. And uh, um, he lives, it's funny, my mom lives on one end of the county, and my dad lives on the other end of the county, and I'm in the middle, so, which is very much like my <laughs> life was growing up. And so I went by to just, I, you know, he's older so now, so I go by and check on him, make sure he's okay. I went by to check on him, and we got to talking about the story that I got published. And he's not a huge reader. My mom was a reader, but anyway, at one point, he he looked at me and he said, you know, I'm so proud of the man that you become, even though if I had nothing to do with it. And I, it just something about that stuck with me. And we've never had we had never had that conversation. You know what I'm saying? And I'm saying conversation air quotes, that right. conversation, the conversation. We sure. just had kind of had agreed, had a mutual agreement to not talk about it as we got older and we were able to repair our relationship somewhat. We had never had the conversation. And so we, we had it that day, you know, we had it that day. And it was like, I just saw this incredible amount of pain in him. And I had always thought that he didn't care, you know, not he didn't care about me, but that he didn't care about what I had gone through growing up without him or with not really without him because like I said he's only seven miles away but this disconnect and hearing him talk about events that had happened in my childhood from his perspective 
you know, from his point of view, yeah. you know, like uh, there was a birthday party that I, oh, I, I, you're my better one. I wanted to go fishing. He had told me he was going to pick me up to go fishing. He never showed up. And, you know, a lot of kids have that story. But to hear from his point of view that, you know, him and my mom had a disagreement on the phone the night before and he felt kind of nervous about coming by. He didn't want to cause a big ruckus. And, and so it made me think about fathers and sons and how we communicate with each other or how we don't communicate with each other. And Black Tie Wason started there. I think it started about a man who, you know, he didn't, you know, his father was missing completely. He had lost contact with his father. His father disappeared. And how would that affect him? And how would you excise that ghost? And what would it take to, you know, relieve yourself of that demon? I think that's where the, the actual genesis of the story came from. Welcome to the Storycraft Cafe. I'm your host, Hank Garner. Today, I am super excited to have my good friend Sarah Penbra on the show with me. Uh, Sarah has been with me a couple of times on my other show uh, that that I do, but uh, I, I couldn't wait to get her here in the Storycraft Cafe. Uh, welcome to the show, Sarah. Thank you for having me. And I know that we've obviously spoken a few times before because you're the only person in America who pronounces my surname right. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I don't know what to say to that, Sarah. But thank you. every time you say Sarah Pimbera, and America is very Sarah Pimbero, <laughs> which I don't mind. I'm used to it. But when I hear someone in America saying it right, I'm like, oh, God's well for them. You know, I I do like to pride myself in in doing a bit of research and and what I can get right, I do like to get right. Um, you know, there there are times where you know. You just can't get things right. But. Well, no, you have the perfect accent for Pimbero because you've well, got that you. little drawl, that little lilt, that great well, American I, drawl. It's uh, you know, it's probably because I'm from the American South and mm. uh, we have Scottish and Irish heritage, uh, both, and it, maybe it's some of that, or maybe I'm you know being self-important. I don't know. <laughs> Oh man, you had you uh it's it's been kind of an exciting week for you. You've got a new book release, don't you? Oh yes, we have Insomnia came out last Tuesday uh from Morrow and so far so good. The Washington Washington Post likes it, the New York Times likes it. So I'm hoping readers will like it because kind of that's the important bit. But you know, I'm hoping it seems to be doing okay so far in this very strange world we live in. Well, the the post and the times aside, uh, I like it. So that, that well, means, that's the most important. That means thing. something, right? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> well, I I think readers are going to like it, and that's what really matters. People yeah, that that you know plunk down their their money and and put put that on the line. That's uh, those are the people that really matter. That yeah, oh, uh, totally, totally. Yeah. But you tend to get more of them when the newspapers like it too. Well, true, <laughs> true. You know, if if you have someone, you know, kind of boost the signal that, yeah, that helps for sure. helps. well uh we're gonna get into talking all about insomnia and all that good stuff in just a minute but for this show we've been having some fun starting the conversation uh with a question that i came up with sarah and it is um what is a piece of writing advice that you have gotten uh, along your career somewhere um, that was either really good advice that you've held on to and it has mattered to you, uh, you know, maybe over and over again, 
or maybe there's a really terrible piece of advice that that has stuck with you that that maybe you did take and you regret or or maybe you you just kind of laugh to yourself and and think oh gosh i'm so glad i didn't listen to that piece of advice oh and there's probably lots of bad advice along the way because everybody thinks their advice is the right advice and it you right. know it's all down to personal experience but one piece of very very good advice and it's more story advice actually and it came from a producer of a TV show I wrote on in the UK called New Tricks, which was a crime show. And I put this piece of advice a couple of years ago when I was plotting a book. I remembered it and I put it on Facebook and people were just imploding with, oh, my God, that's such a good way to look at it. And so it right. was about it was about crime, really. And it said he said to me, the. The investigation can be as complicated as you like. It can be as complex and as convoluted as you want. But what happens on the night has to be really simple. And that, I think, is a really good approach to crime. You know, like the actual motivation and what happened has to be really straightforward. Everything right. has to be complicated and diverting. You know, so it's a really, it's you know, it was a really interesting way to look at writing any form of crime fiction and in fact you can translate that to any plot whatsoever the central core concept has right. to be quite tight and then everything else can be as bonkers as you want it to be right so i'd rather praise someone than than pull out a piece of terrible advice <laughs> that was given. although i'm sure i mean that i'm sure to be fair i've probably given a lot of bad advice as well. Uh, haven't we all haven't we all my main advice to people is just oh get on with it it's not brain surgery <laughs> <laughs> Advice you never want to give to a brain surgeon. Well, true. Yes, true. True. <laughs> uh, Sarah, I'm glad you brought up that that point about plot because um, the types of books that you write that are um, that have kind of become your your sweet spot in publishing, and and you've you've written um, kind of all along the genre spectrum. Um, which is something else I want to touch on in just a minute. But um, the the types of books that that you have become known for are um, psychological suspense, bordering on horror. Uh, and <laughs> you know, let's be honest the the the, the farther you go uh, along your writing path, the more close to horror you get it's like full circle i yeah, started out i started out as a horror writer and i'll end up back as a horror writer that's so funny <laughs> that's so funny um but you know the those books tend to be uh especially with a crime element tend to be plot heavy um yet your books are very um close uh kind of close camera if you will um character studies uh, mm. because you, we're getting literally inside characters heads that you've come up with and so they're they're very character driven um how do you balance character versus plot especially with the types of books that you write well i think again it comes back to that tight conceit at the core you know mm -hmm. behind her eyes how far would you go for obsessional love you know right. how, how far would you go for that this one is you know i don't want to give too much away but it's you know, are you going mad or is someone doing it to you? You know, that that kind of sort of right. is the question. Um, and I'm very much, I mean, I'm not comparing myself to either of these people, but I really like 
sort of Hitchcock and Polanski style paranoia, mm -hmm. claustrophobia, ordinary people put into strange situations, and especially especially in a domestic situation where it's your marriage, your home, your life. And I think it's now, you know, I don't particularly want to write another marriage trauma book because I feel like I've done a few and everyone's doing them. But I do think I bring my certain little flavour to it. So for me, I think if you're going to do what I do and add some weird into it, you really have to get in the characters' heads because right, like my problem with a lot of horror novels especially especially bad ones. I mean, in particular bad ones, because this is clearly an example of bad or inexperienced. I'll put I'll say inexperienced because I've read some good crime writers who've tried to write a horror novel and this is they've done this. So my problem with a crime a horror novel, like a ghost story where someone sees a ghost very early on in the book and they're like, oh my God, I've seen a ghost. And then they they go on like this or they're oh my god this ghost is following me around and they tell someone and then someone else believes them and then they're on this investigation and I think well that's not how it would work if I started to see something that wasn't there I would think number one oh my god I've got a brain tumor number two am I going mad but what right. you know it's a very insular for before I even got to anything supernatural I'm going to go through all those paranoias and worries and stresses and it will all be internal Right. So I think when you're going to go weird, you have to really ground your world you're in so that when it starts to go weird, people will go along with it, you know. So like with a ghost story, I think it's better to have a few creaks, a few, you know, like a few, a little build up before anything is seen, if anything is ever seen. So in this, there is weird, but it starts with her worrying about her personal history that's come back into her life with her family and then you know trying to keep that secret from her husband then not sleeping and then worrying about the past repeating itself and all of this is going on before we even start to think there's anything odd happening does that make any sense I'm, it's Absolutely. late day on a friday hank you're gonna have to work with me here i'm 50 <laughs> i should be napping <laughs> when you start conceiving a book when when uh and uh, this is something that I, I've loved digging into with people um, uh, lately is um, the moment of creation is a, is kind of a, a magical time, you know, that in, in one moment, uh, a book like insomnia does not exist in any, any form or fashion. It just doesn't exist. And then either a character walks onto the stage of your mind and, and you're like, well, who is this? And and what are they up to? And, uh, you know, what is what are these strange circumstances that are happening to this person? Uh, or maybe you watch a a, a news uh, broadcast on on television and it starts the what if game to to playing in your mind. And then you cast, you know, that that story with with characters that you've made up. And then in that moment, the story does exist in in some form and then it's your job as the writer to to dig that out or to excavate it as i like to say to you know you, you get the idea of of uh archaeologist you know you know doing the 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 tedious work of of you know getting this thing out of the ground dusting down all the little bits yes yes they with hold the, together yeah, with the little brushes and you know and 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 then that becomes the work of the writer um but but what is that first moment of inspiration that that kicks off the whole thing oh, that gets God. the synapses firing? It really depends. Sorry, my dog's come to say hello. So he's just like, <laughs> hello, dog. Hey, what's going on? I was asleep and now you're talking. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
Uh, it can depend, really. I mean, often they're not as kind of wonderful as just the moment arrives. Often I'll have half an idea for something else. And then while mulling that, I'll get a better idea. Or yeah. I think, oh, actually, what if, what if, what if? So with Behind Your Eyes, I wanted to write about a marriage and an affair and something quite obsessional, obviously with right. a murder. Um, and I wanted to put in about, I wanted to put dreams in it because I dream a lot. And I think you can be very influenced about how your nights are spent and, you know, all this stuff. And then I just kind of had the ending just came to me in that I was jotting down bits about the characters and who was dead and who wasn't and who was in the well. And then I was like, oh, actually, what if, you know, what if I went really bonkers with this? And then I had to seed it all the way through. I mean, I always, always, always have to have the ending like fully locked in. So I will often see the whole final chapter, even down to like the occasion, you know, like dialogue in it. Like with yeah. the last chapter of Behind Your Eyes was in the pitch for the book. So with Insomnia though, it was, I had a different book idea. It was still, I mean, it was, I say it's similar. I don't think it was similar at all, but I had a, a, a working wife who was very high powered, a stay at home dad, but the the wife was much less relatable and much less likable in a lot of ways and had her own secrets. Whereas Emma is is definitely our heroine of our piece. I mean, we don't know if she's going mad. Whatever whatever she does or doesn't do is not in her past. It's in her future, you know? Right, right. So um, she's not carrying any big secrets in any, you know, terrible way, like a lot of a lot of psychological thriller characters do. But I I I was chatting with some other women, actually, two producers I know about female guilt. And they were saying, doesn't matter what you do, like if you miss a parents' evening, it's worse for the woman than it is for the man. You know, it's all these right. things that are still, even if you're be the main breadwinner, and there's still these sort of gender expectations, as it were. Sure. Um, so I thought, well, I, you know, I want to play with that a little bit. And then <laughs> we were talking about our relationships with our mothers, and I thought, well, let's take that to the extreme. <laughs> um and worrying about getting older and I thought well let's throw that in there as well and then I just and I don't sleep very well and the pandemic arrived and no one was sleeping and I found it really interesting that it was women who were not sleeping still doing the homeschooling and I think women we worried more especially right. at the start than men we were very much of that oh my god this thing could kill us wash your hands, stay at home. And men were still a bit, it's going to be fine. It'll be gone by summer, you know? A lot of <laughs> right. my friends' husbands, anyway, were still like, it'll be fine. Um, and then they slowly caught up with the rest of us. But So I wanted to kind of play with all of that. So it's never a, it's never a lightning bolt moment for me. It's always pages of notes and scrawls. And in fact, my agent came up to visit me yesterday and we were talking and I said, oh God, you know, I've never felt like this before where I'm scrabbling for an idea. She went, Sarah, you feel this every single time. <laughs> I was like, oh. She goes, it's like childbirth. You just forget. <laughs> she goes, right. I remember because it's me you're on the phone to going, maybe I'm never going to write another book again. <laughs> and then you're like, oh, I think I have an idea. <laughs> That's funny. Um, speaking of COVID, uh, I've, I've wondered over the last year and a half or so what this time and this collective experience that we've all been through, how that is going to show up in, in, in art and in, in books specifically. Um, and, and I can, I can count on one hand, the amount of stories that I've encountered that actually reference directly 
um, the COVID pandemic. You oh, know, I think and, it's too soon, don't you think? Like, well, I, I do think, think it's too novel. soon. I, yeah, I think it's too soon to read. And it was apparently a really great book, and it was like set in lockdown. And I was like, I have absolutely no interest in reading anything about lockdown. Right. Right. And I well, also think emotionally, it's going to be another ten years before we really know right. how we feel about this time. You know, but but I think what we are going to see are stories like insomnia that that are uh, that that COVID was a sort of a catalyst for. Mm. And it's it's not that the book is about COVID at all, but those those feelings um, have to come out, be dealt with, be expressed in in some fashion. And and I, I'm I'm really excited if we can be excited about anything with COVID. Um, but I'm excited to see the the ways that people are taking this this kind of uh generalized angst and and what the interpretation of that's gonna be. Yeah. It's interesting, isn't it? I mean I think it is. I think a lot of people just kind of I've got back to normal. I mean, I've got back to normal now. I'm pretty much zen with it. You know, our whole yeah. country is like, we've got one in 10 people have it. So there's no point in worrying about it. Otherwise, you'd never leave your house. So, you exactly. know, I have to go into London and have meetings and stuff. So I don't really, and I had it very, very early on back in the 2020. So um, I'm kind of like hoping that's given me a bit of extra resolve. But I also think people forget very quickly. You know, right. I don't see huge swathes of literature talking about the Spanish flu. You know, right. you know, there's not, I think people right. forget, we forget very quickly when we go through these things. So I don't know. I'm not sure, but I do think it'll be a while before people really, really kind of reflect yeah. on the full. And also, I guess it's different. I mean, if you were unfortunate enough to lose loved ones, it's going to have a much bigger impact right. than right. if you didn't have to worry about your job, you had a nice home to sit in, you had a garden, you lived in right. a nice bit of town. I think it's different if you lived in a high rise in London and you couldn't get to your job and you ran out of money and then that's going to have a massive impact. Yeah. So I'm being a bit, what's your privilege, Pimbra, in my comments? Because actually for a lot of people, it was, a, you know, there's a lot more emotional baggage coming out of the well, back Sure, end. sure. Well, you know, it's interesting because we've seen um, a, a big boom in um, historical fiction, specifically around the World War II era uh, mm. in the last maybe five years or so. And you know, I've often wondered what, you know, why the, the spike in, in interest in this, this particular era is, you know, now, and, and maybe it's because the, the people of that generation are, uh, are quickly going away and, oh. and we're losing those stories, you know, yeah. and, and we're, we're grasping at anything we can to, to hold on to that, the, the, so that the, the people and their their particular stories aren't lost you know to the i think you're right actually i think there is a kind of we've got to get this stuff down while the people are there kind of thing you know i remember when my dad was dying i was i'd ask him a lot about his childhood just because i was like well i'm never going to get to ask these questions again brothers and sisters have scattered to the four i think i think they're nearly all dead now yeah but, so you know, maybe so you it'll do... be the 2060s or 2070s before we get, you know, the, the COVID story. The COVID story. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> God. That'd be okay with me. That'd be okay mm. with me. Yeah, to be fair, I'm like, I could live without it. Right. You know, right. I, you might, I might lob in a bit of hand sanitizer in one chapter, but <laughs> that's about it. I mean, I work a lot in TV and film, and even in the height of lockdown, I was working on one pilot, and I said, are we referencing COVID in this? And they were like, oh, God, no. God no. I'm like, cool. That's fine by me. It's fine by me. 
Well, well, speaking of that, and, and we touched on it earlier and I, and I said we would come back around to it, but um, you have been uh, a writer that has delved into a number of, of genres from from horror to psychological suspense, some YA, some fairy tale retellings, um, historical, historical, historical you, you know, yeah. there's um, and and the um. The conventional wisdom, as far as publishing is concerned, is find something that 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 an audience likes that you do and never deviate from that. Um, you know, stay with what what people love about you. Um, and, you know, that that was good advice. And if I'd done that, I probably would have had a better career, a longer well, career. <laughs> well, you know, and we so can I argue asked, the merits I mean, like, of that. It was, it's kind of I mean, like, I think Behind Her Eyes was my 23rd book. So I'd written a lot of books and a lot of genres and it was hard and it was difficult for publishers because, and I find it difficult, especially before Behind Rise, people would say, oh, which I liked, let's say they say, I liked your fairy tales. Which of your books should I read next? I'm like, I literally have no idea because they're all quite different. <laughs> so I think 13 Minutes was kind of my first thriller, really, even though it was a YA thriller. Yeah. So if, when I had written Behind Rise, people would say, oh, I, you know, what else? I'd be like, oh, 13 Minutes. But actually, I think readers do just, if they like your storytelling, they'll go along with most stories, I think. Like, I've got people who thought Behind Her Eyes was my first book, who've now gone back and bought all the other books. Thank them very much. But, you know, they like them. And I think, well, they're all different. So it's quite interesting to see. But, yeah, I mean, it is good advice to pick a lane and stay in it. But I'm just really bad at that. Well, I'm I'm going to play devil's advocate for just a, a moment because, you know, as readers – um, I love to read all over the place. I love to read a bit of horror. I love to read thrillers. I love to read, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll read a, a historical romance. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm all over the place. Um, and as if we are that way as readers, then writers uh, obviously have varied um, things that they're interested in. And, um, you know, so, so how do you, um, scratch that itch as a writer to to tell all of the different kinds of stories that you want to tell while also maintaining um, your ability to to have a successful writing career. And maybe this is an unfair question because, you know, you you kind of wrote those other things before your huge success as a, as a thriller slash uh psychological suspense slash horror um, slash author. <laughs> but but what what do you think about that how, how do you how do Me? you interpret I mean, the navigating the waters well if I want to write something that's not one of those things I'll either write a short story or something and get it out that way or I'll pitch it for television because they're a little broader in what you can do in different you know you're not in one lane in television or film right. so you know, I can pitch a crime show with one company and pitch a fantasy show with another company and, you know, and do it that way. Um, but the but with books, I, it's very tricky because when, so when I was starting out, and, and by that, I mean all the way up to that 23rd book, really, I wasn't getting paid huge amounts. I was getting paid nicely, but I wasn't getting paid big money. And so th they can let you be freer with what you write especially the fantasy horror community and publishers, they're a bit more, you know, they give you a bit more space. 
Yeah. Because, you know, so I could do a few more different things. They know they're going to get their money back. They know that, you know, they haven't invested that much. They're not going to spend a huge amount of marketing. But then if you have a book like Behind Her Eyes where you're suddenly selling hundreds of thousands of copies, people have paid you quite a lot of money. They've paid for a second book. They need it to be in the same vein because right. you and I, you more than me, I think, read broadly. A lot of people don't read broadly. A lot of people want to go in the supermarket. They want to pick up a thriller. They want to read the, th you know, they're, they're not necessarily fans of, in the in the thriller market, the psychological thriller market, that you don't really get that fan base thing you get in fantasy. You know, they're very much book by book by book rather than author by author. Until you get to Harlan Coben, Ian Rankin, you know, right. that kind of level. Right. Um, whereas the fantasy, I think people have much more dedicated readers. You know, like if Joe Abercrombie wrote a crime novel, I'm not sure his fantasy readers would necessarily stick with him, but they'd definitely buy the first one. You know, it's that, right. I think there's that kind right. of thing. So it is very difficult. And I do get urges to change what I'm writing. And to be honest, I am quite tired of writing psychological thrillers. So I think the next one will be a crime novel with some weird in it rather than a psychological thriller with some weird in it. More of a sort of sprawling kind of Stephen King-esque town sort of crime novel, multiple characters you know third person past tense but you just can't leave the weird alone can you no that's in my blood <laughs> i always have to have the weird the weird's always there i can't help that <laughs> Love it. so speaking of uh behind her eyes um my 17 year old son uh came to my wife and i several months ago i think it was and he said i've discovered this new show on netflix and y'all have to watch it with me and and he's and he he turned it on and I was like, why does this seem so familiar? <laughs> and I was like, oh, this is this is my friend Sarah's book. And, and, and like I pulled up my podcast. I was like, see, she's been on the she's been on my show a couple of times. And and he just. You know, it was it was it was, it was so funny, um, but having your work interpreted, um, uh, you know, to to a a successful television show on Netflix. And I know that you've also written screenplays and oh. things like that, but what does that do? Um, monetary success aside. Um, yeah. What does that do for your creative process to have um, something that you've written interpreted and exposed to an audience that uh, like my 17 year old son does not read the same things that I read yeah. yet. Yet this thing bridged, um, you know, built a bridge between, you know, he and I, and, um, it was, it was really cool. What, what does that do for your creative process as a creative person? Um, I'm not sure what it does for my creative processes, but it was crazy good. You know, Like I loved, <laughs> like when you write a book, I mean, you know what it's like, your work is out there and slowly reviews trickle in and you're already on the next thing and blah, blah, blah. And it's all a bit slow. Whereas, with yeah. this, I could literally track the hashtag on Twitter and watch people's minds exploding as they got to the end. And it was a bit kind of, I was a bit like, oh, my God, this came out of my head and all these millions of people. Because, you know, it's, it's such a lot of people. Like, if you saw right. that many books, I'd be living in a castle. I'd be saying, Hank, I'm sending the jet. We're going to do this in my by my pool, <laughs> you know, with a beer. 
<laughs> if I'd sold that many books. But having all those people watching something that's come out of your head, I guess it's a bit like getting an insight into how it must feel to be someone like Stephen King, where so many people, you're such a part of, you know, like it, it right. was like a tiny little raindrop of what it must be like to be that, which was so surreal. But also amazing because also I was happy with it and they were very close to the book and I thought they did it really well. And yeah, so I, it was a really good experience. So, and you know, creatively, I, I don't think it really changed me apart from everybody in the world in every TV company everywhere was wanting a psychological thriller from me as if they, you could just snap them out of air. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Well, um, the Storycraft Cafe, uh, this writer's community that we're building and with this podcast is, you know, an outgrowth of, um, is uh, is really providing a place where writers can commiserate with each other and share successes and burdens and struggles and and motivate each other and encourage one another and and you know all the things that 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 humans need you know the, the interaction that we all crave and uh, validation that we need from one another as someone who's written twenty some odd you know novels to date. Um, it, do you have a, a community of people wow. around you that that you trust and that you, um, you know, share your work with or go to when you're having one of those days? Yeah, I mean, I don't share my work so much now, but um, I guess sort of, I think I've got two sort of groups of buddies, and one is from the horror community. So Tim Leban and Chris Golden and Mark Morris and. There's a few of us, Comrade Williams, that go back a long time, you know, like Tim was my first writer friend. And and the good thing about the pandemic was actually we started to Zoom more and we hadn't done that. You know, he's got his career, family, life, I'm busy. And so you end up just dropping each other the odd email or seeing each other at a convention or something. But it doesn't happen very often because especially when I've been doing thrillers, I'm going to crime conventions, he's going to horror conventions. Um, But yeah, they are definitely the people when you don't want to, I'm not a great believer in sharing your failures publicly. I don't think it does anyone any good and it makes you look like you're bitter. You know, <laughs> like I see a lot of people getting bitter yeah. on Facebook and I'm like, no, save that. Just keep that in. Go and find someone that you can go for a beer with and let that out. Just mm-hmm. take take a break from social media and come back in when you're in a good place. That's just my perspective. You know, I, I just find that. For, I don't mean per, for people's personal stuff. Whatever people want to say about their lives is up to them. But professionally, I think you have to be careful. So, you know, look, you never know who's seeing your Twitter or someone might look up, they want to work with you and they see something negative about a producer is not a good look or yeah. about an editor or whatever. Um, so I have that group. And then in crime, I have a couple of really good friends. And yeah, we all, we I call them my musketeers. And we were always like in little, little round robin emails and, then we go to some of the festivals together and that kind of thing. It's nice. I mean, I'm not I'm not an overly social person. I'm quite good with people, but I'm not overly social. I just like the people that, you know, I'm not, I'm fine yeah. on a stage. I just, I'm, I'm not so great meeting lots of new people. So I tend to stick with the people I know and then slowly add people in, you know? Right, right. But yeah, I mean, I think back to the beginning of my career when I was starting out writing horror. And we didn't have Facebook. Sorry, I'm just readjusting myself. We didn't have Facebook. We didn't have Twitter. Yeah. We didn't even have MySpace. So there were things that were super important to me, like the British Fantasy Society used to have like these open nights, they called them, and they'd have them in a pub in London. 
And so there'd be lots of people there, like Mike Marshall-Smith, who was doing really well at the time, and Stephen Jones, who did all the anthologies, and Adam Neville. And so many people would go. And I was teaching. And it was like the only time I got to be around other writers. And I would literally finish school at three. I'd drive home like an hour, quickly get changed, jump on a train, go into London. And I'd be so excited just to hang out with other writers or people I admired or whatever. And Tim Lebon was a guest of honour at when my first book came out, 2004, December, he was guest of honour at World Horror. I think it was in the March 2005. I'd never been to a convention. I didn't know, you know, I was like, I'm not going to know anyone. I just met up with my boyfriend. And so my dad said, look, I'll come with you. If you hate it, we'll have five days in New York. Just We'll just go off and do stuff. Yeah. If you find your feet and you like it, I'll take care of myself. You go and do whatever you got to do. I'll find bars. And my dad was really social. He would like, he literally that trip, I went to find him in a bar and he had, one guy was taking him on a helicopter tour the next day. Another guy, you know, like it was like, it was like he'd walked into cheers. So but, funny. Um, but it was so great. And I met so many people there. And And then I realized that actually those convention festivals could be really great experiences. And now there's way more women as well, which is better you know right. you still because i just think i think women were always working they just never went to the festivals they're a bit like you know <laughs> a bunch of blokes standing around talking about comics but it, you know it was really good and i and it was good to to me and i would meet people that i thought were like so impressive and i remember meeting james moore do you know james moore he's a horror I, writer Jim i don't moore. know him but i know of him yeah and i had read a couple of his books and i saw him and i was like oh my god oh my god jim moore <laughs> it was just really weird how you'd like and now i'm like oh it's jim yeah. but so i'm i kind of miss those days when everything was aspirational do you right. know what i mean you kind of like when you're all excited and it's new and it's all sort of oh my god maybe one day i'll have more than one book <laughs> Well, speaking of that, you know, when most people begin their writing career, um, they are um, they're they're writing as a hobby and then they have aspirations that that hobby, you know, becomes their, uh, you know, their career. And oh. and there's a there's a balance to, uh, you know, writing wherever you can find the time and, and squeezing in, you know, moments here and there. But then when you become. Uh, a, a career writer and writing is your job. Um, what does that do to uh, to kind of your mindset of, you know, waking up every day and okay, now I have to like, I have to be a writer today, you know, as opposed to I have to go to the office and then I'm going to squeeze in 15 minutes here or there to do the writing. Is there a, is there a a, a mind shift that happens when this is your job now? Yeah, I mean, it's been a while now. I reckon I've been writing full time about 13, 14 years. So it's hard to remember. Wow. But yes. And what one thing that did strike me actually was with some of these. So there was Steve Volk, Tim Levin, Adam Neville, me, um, Mark Morris. There was a few of us that used to get, would get a cottage, would rent a okay. cottage, we'd go for a writing weekend. So we would. Adam never would get the train to Milton Keynes. I would drive him from here. Everyone would converge in some, you know, cheap cottage, take yeah. loads of food, and we'd have Friday night with dinner and drinks and laugh and catch up. And then we would all have our workspaces. We'd get breakfast, we'd work a few hours, have some lunch, work a few more hours, and then get drunk and chat and whatever, and then repeat the next day. <laughs> and they were great. And, you know, again, we'd race down there, try and get, like, we're going to do 8,000 words or whatever. 
But then Tim Lebanon and I both went full time. And it just wasn't quite the same because it was almost like this the weekend. <laughs> I don't want to write. I just want to do the sitting around drinking and chatting bit. You right. know, because it wasn't like you had to get as many hours in as you could or squeeze it in in your lunch hour or that kind of thing. Um, I think you just, it becomes, it does become more of a job, you know? And yeah. I think as with all things, with every experience you have, you realize there's lows and there's highs. Not everything is trajectory like this it can go down and go up and so you know 20 years ago I was like oh my god this is just the most exciting thing in my life and now I'm like even when something good happens I'm like oh what's gonna go wrong you know and so you you have to remind yourself to enjoy the highs because there's a huge amount of lows you know it's a job of failure isn't it it's a job where failure is the standard you know you send the book in nine times out of ten they're gonna say no it could be the best book in the world they haven't had their coffee. They've read one just like it. They've bought one just like it. Whatever it is, you know, that could be the end of your dream with that publisher for at least one more year. Mm-hmm. So it's constantly battling failure, isn't it, this job? I'm so cheerful. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's Friday, you know. It's, yeah. It's what you get on a Friday. Um, <laughs> some writers hold uh to the ideal that that they write every single day maybe it's a hundred words maybe it's a thousand words but every single day i i have a friend who's like the even on christmas day he's going to get a thousand words in period no mm. no excuses um and then i i know other people that write seasonally if you will there's a you know when when a new novel is coming about um there's a there's a a time for plotting and planning and just kind of letting all the ideas ruminate and then there's the drafting stage and mm. and for 90 days they work on that first draft and and then you know there's editing and all the stuff that comes after that but then when when all of that is done they don't write again until it's time for the next story and they go Aww. kind of through that process again um do you fall in either one of those camps I used to be a, or must do 2,000 words a day, blah, blah, blah. That was when all I did was write novels, you know? And actually, I have learned that the thinking time is far more important than the word count, you know? Because I could write 90,000 words in two months. They wouldn't be the best 90,000 words I'd ever written (laughs) in my life, you know? Because actually, mulling it over can get better results. And also... Well, a lot of times, thinking is writing. Yeah. And also, you know, so currently I'm working on three TV projects, two film projects, and I've got to write a book. So it's like the book can often get pushed to one side because it's not the most immediate thing. Yeah. And um, yeah, so so I do write every day, not necessarily on a book. You know, I, I work every day, put it that yeah. way. I work every day. I work Christmas Day. I work all the day, all the time. You know, that's like just, yeah. even if I'm watching telly, I'll be kind of yeah. ticking over. The, those are some of the best times for me. The, oh. Just the the disengaging your brain, uh, you know. It's like when you turn your... the light out and you're like, oh, yeah. I'm so tired. Then you turn your light out and you're like, what like, this oh. happened? And then that happened. And then this happened. You have to like send yourself right. a voice note or something. Yeah. And then three <laughs> hours later, you realize you haven't gone to sleep. And, yeah, exactly. You know, exactly. Yeah. Wow. Um, do you think we'll see um, 
any screen adaptations for insomnia like we did behind our eyes? Oh, I've just finished. I've just got to do a couple of tweaks on episode one. And then um, Left Bank, who made Behind Her Eyes, will be taking it out to various broadcasters. We've got a couple that are keen. So we'll see. Can't wait. Can't we wait. We will see. I'm hoping so. I mean, we should do. I think they're pretty confident we'll get it away, but never count your yeah. chickens and all that stuff. Yeah. All that stuff. Yeah. Well, Sarah, this has been so much fun catching up um, for for all the people that for the, the three people out there that that, you know, are not familiar with your work. Oh, um, to tell them where they can find you online and dig into all the great stuff that you um, they can find me on Twitter as Sarah Pimbra. Um, I'm on Instagram as Sarah Pimbra Books. That's probably the two places to find me, mainly Twitter. You know, I have Facebook, but that's more family and friends kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, and then hopefully you can find my books in all good bookstores and obviously the demon headmaster that is Amazon. <laughs> but, you know, to be fair, every day the Amazon man comes to my house. So I can't really, you know, say anything bad about them. Right. Right. Well, speaking of that, I have to uh, ask you this uh, because Insomnia is available in Kindle edition oh. if you like to read that way or hardcover or audiobook. Um, I love your audiobooks. Oh, um, thanks. What do you, what do you think about having your work translated to audio? I literally can't listen to any of it. <laughs> <laughs> I can't listen. I just I just feels weird to hear it to me. Yeah, yeah just I can't. Um, and they did they did a they did the thing on Radio Four here for Behind Rise. They called it Book at Bedtime, and they abbrevi and it's quite a big deal. And they abbreviated it and everything. But I still couldn't listen, even though they'd got actors in and. <laughs> I've listened to the very opening of Insomnia on the audiobook, and people have said to me, oh, I loved it, but I, I just am like, whoa, that's weird. It's a, it's a new experience. You know, I, I got the the advanced reader copy um, months ago, I guess, mm. uh, from your publisher, and, you know, you you flip through and you read it, and then you listen to the audiobook, and it's like a completely different experience. Uh, I, I don't know what it is. You know, it's the it's the same words, it's the same story, but it's, it's audiobooks it's, are massive in America, aren't they? I mean, they I are. sold a lot of audiobooks. I think maybe because people drive so much. Maybe, you know, maybe that's yeah. what it is. Well, and really, the, the advent. Well, and the advent of smartphones have have mm. definitely spurred that along. You know, we. I mean, I'm trying for years, but I'm trying them. I've got Audible now. Because I thought actually I could listen to a book in bed, but I can't get into it. Not even just my books. I just can't get into audiobook. I don't know why. That's, I must try hard. So it's because I'm so old, Hank. <laughs> they, they changed my life, I'll tell you. You know, there's oh. not many things that you can actually say changed your life. And, uh, but but yeah, audiobooks. I'm going to give it a go then. That's I a side try. tangent, and that's free for whoever needs that. You know, <laughs> that's your books. advice for the day. Yeah. Give them a go. Yes. Sarah, thank you so much for joining me in the well, story. Thank you for having me again. And I promise you, if I ever get that super, super millions and millions, if I ever have that um, gone girl or girl on a train moment when the whole world has bought my book, I will ship you in on a private jet and we'll meet let's, on the beach and we'll do the do next it. one live. <laughs> let's do it. Let's do it. Thank you, Sarah. Have a great thank day. Thank you. And you.